0: Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at curious stories from the Old Testament. Um, at least they're curious to me. Uh, most of them are lesser-known events in the Old Testament. Um, beginning today, Pastor Ryan is on vacation for a couple Sundays, and then he'll be back a couple Sundays, and he's on vacation again. So, uh, But I'm going to be preaching for the next five Sundays. That's just an arrangement that he and I uh, worked out, so... Um, I don't want you to worry that even though i'm saying I 'm preaching a five week series that he 's not going to be here, he 's going to be here some of the time. Someone has said that it takes a whole Bible to make the whole, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. The gospels and the rest of the New Testament are of course, food for the soul. You know, they, they, they help us to be strong in the faith, but the Old Testament is not nothing. <laughs> it is also food for the soul. Uh, It's meat to keep us strong in the faith. Uh, Jesus told his disciples that all the scriptures pointed to him. And the only scriptures he had at that time, they had at that time, was the Old Testament. And yet he said all those scriptures pointed to Christ. Peter and Paul preached Christ from the scriptures. And again, the only scriptures they had was Genesis through Malachi. So this church is not a New Testament only church. We preach the New Testament and the Old Testament. The New Testament is wonderful and it's absolutely vital. But there's much in the New Testament that wouldn't make as much sense if we didn't have the Old Testament as well. So since Micah is as as much God's word as Matthew is, as much as 1 Chronicles is as much God's word as 1 Corinthians is, we're going to study the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. If you're interested in reading ahead on the scriptures that we're going to pre we're going to be talking about each Sunday. These are the scriptures, unless the Lord leads differently. So today we're talking about Genesis 14, which is a a, a curious story in the life of Abraham. Um, and then uh, next week, First Samuel 25, which is a story about Abigail uh, and uh, David and Nabal. First Corinthians 13 is about a, a prophet. Uh, uh, an old prophet, a donkey, and a lion. Um, 2 Chronicles 24 is about King Joash, who was a boy king, grew up eventually. Uh, 2 Chronicles 34 is about Josiah, also a boy king. Uh, And Jeremiah 36, those two together, is is, uh, Jehoiakim. So it's Josiah and Jehoiakim. Anyway, I just put that up there in case if you want to read ahead, you can. Uh, Before each Sunday, uh, you're obviously not required to. You can stick to your own Bible reading schedule or what have you. Today's passage is Genesis chapter 14. So I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis, actually chapter 12 first. Genesis chapter 12. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 9, page 9. We're going to start with the call to Abraham, uh, beginning in verse 1 there, chapter 12, verse 1. I want to read the first three verses. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. Um, I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who uh, treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So here's the famous beginnings of what we call the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham. He gave promises to Abraham that eventuated in in the Messiah in terms of Christ. Christ fulfilled these. Let's see the promises that he made there. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And through you, you will, be, you will be a blessing to all peoples on earth. And certainly that became true, especially in the person of Jesus Christ. So these are the promises that God made to Abraham. Then in verse 4 and 5, So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot. All the possessions they had accumulated – and the people he had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. So in obedience to the promise and the command of God, Abraham left his home country and went to the promised land, the land of Canaan. Now, a few things happen in chapter twelve and in verse thirteen in chapter thirteen. And there in chapter thirteen, we're not gonna well, we are gonna read part of it, but Abraham and Lot uh, Abram is the uncle, Lot is the nephew, they acquire lots, they become wealthy. They both become wealthy by the blessing of God, so much so that they can no longer dwell together. Uh, their, their servants, their shepherds are, are fighting amongst one another, and so they have to, uh, they agree uh, to split. Abram tells him, tell me where you're going, and I'm going to go the other way. So look at chapter 13, uh, beginning with verse 10. So Lot looked out and saw that the entire Jordan Valley, as far as Zoar, was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden and the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire Jordan Valley for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward and they separated from each other. So Lot and all his many possessions go towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards the Jordan Valley. Verse 12, Abram lived in the land of Canaan. But Lot lived in the cities of the valley and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning greatly against the Lord. After Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you are, look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. So the Lord is adding to the blessing that he has already made him in terms of land. I'm going to give this land to you. I want you to walk up and down it, and this land is going to come to you and your offspring. Now we get to chapter 14, and it's probably one of the most Well, for me, it's one of the most unusual stories in the many chapters that are devoted to Abraham. Because we think of Abraham as a man of faith. We know about the story with regards to his sons. Um, We know about the call to sacrifice Isaac. But this one is very interesting because we encounter Abraham the soldier, Abraham the warrior, Abraham the uh, general, if you will. In this chapter, we're all, uh, we're also going to meet a couple kings, and we're going to meet the first priest who is ever mentioned in Scripture. Let's begin with verses one through four of chapter fourteen. I'm going to unpack this chapter. We're going to ex- read through it, explain it, and then we're going to apply it towards the end. So, be patient for the for the history lesson first, and then we'll get to the application. I promise. In those days, chapter one, in those chapter fourteen, verse one, in those days, Amraphel, king of Shinar. Ariat, king of Elisar, Kedar, Laramor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, waged war against, I know you've heard all these names, Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zoboyim. um as well as the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All of these came as allies to the Valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea. They were subject to Kedar, Laramor, for 12 years, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keter Laramor and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtareth Karnaim. No, no, wait, I want to stop there. We'll come, we'll pick up that in a minute. Let me just let me just stop for a minute. So what is this saying? These are talking about ancient kings who were fighting against one another. And we recognize a couple of the terminology a couple of the names, Sodom, Gomorrah. Okay. So there were, there were four kings far from the uh, from the east. They're coming from the east, uh, and they conquer the the kings uh, who are in the Jordan Valley, including Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happens? These these Jordan Valley kings are required to pay tribute now to the kings of the east, and they do so for 12 years. And that tribute could take the form of gold, silver, uh, animals, uh, food, whatever. But for 12 years, they had to pay tribute to the kings of the east because they had been conquered. Uh, but then in the 13th year, they decided we're not going to pay anymore. <laughs> we're not going to pay tribute. We think that you're not coming back. Uh, we'll, we'll be fine. Uh, so now we're going to find out how the eastern kings react in verses 5 through 7. In the 14th year, Keter Laramor and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtoreth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Imim and Shavakir at the Im, and the Horites in the mountains of Seir as far as El Paran, by the wilderness. And they came back to invade In-Mishpat, that is Kadesh. And they defeated all the territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites, who lived in Hazazon Tamar. So these eastern kings are not happy, and uh, they come back in order to subdue these kings again. But they, start, they don't start with the Jordan Valley kings. They actually start up far north. If you can picture the Bible map in your head. I want to put a map up here, but... That was unsuccessful. You can picture the Bible map in your head. You've got the Sea of Galilee, and way up north, these kings start attacking all the way down the eastern side of the Jordan River, coming all the way down. At the bottom of the Dead Sea are these Jordan Valley kings, but they go past, and they go all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba, and then they circle around and come back up in order to face these Jordan Valley kings. It's a remarkable feat that these uh, eastern kings have accomplished because they subdued a large swath of land that uh, from the northern point to the southern point is about 285 miles that they've subdued all these people and now they all these peoples and they've come back around now in order to deal with these particular kings that were already paying tribute for them. So then we pick up with another uh, description of battle, which is surely exciting. Verses 8 through 12, verse 8. Uh, then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of bela that is, is, went out and lined up for battle in the valley of Sidim against keter Laramor, king of Elam, Tidal king of Goim, Amraphel king of Shinar, and Ariat king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim contained many asphalt pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. The four kings, so the eastern kings, have again won the battle against these Jordan Valley kings. Verse 11, the four kings took all the goods of Sodom, they took all the goods of Gomorrah and all their food, and they went on, they're heading home. Verse 12, they also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, and remember, Lot is a wealthy man at this point. He has a lot of possessions. Took Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. Twice we're told that they went on. They went on. They're returning home. They not only have subjected them in terms of tribute, but now they're taking the tribute with them, and they're taking much more. They're taking captives with them as well. So it's bye-bye, Lot. <laughs> or not. Um Enter Abraham the warrior in verses 13 to 16. One of the survivors came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Anur. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative, Lot, had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants... Uh, deployed against them by night, attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods as well as the women and the other people. Abram has a large household. We know he doesn't have any sons yet at this point, but he has a large household in terms of servants um, who uh, you know, work for him He has all these flocks and herds and so forth. So he has a large household in which he can muster 318 trained men. Plus he has these allies. Um, And they, when he hears about Lot, um, they pursue this victorious alliance of eastern kings. And there they pursue him up to Dan, which is about a trip from his home all the way up to Dan is about a trip of 150 miles. They pursue them. They catch up with them at Dan, They divide up, they attack, and then they chase them even further to north of Damascus, at least another 60 miles. And Abraham is entirely successful. He recovers everything, including Lot and all his possessions and all the captives. What's remarkable about this event is that Abraham won, (laughs) that Abraham was victorious. Why do we have verses 1 through 11, all these names and all these battles It's to impress us with the victory that Abraham won at this point. This king, Keter Larimar, who seems to lead this alliance, has been like the Nebuchadnezzar of that time or the the Alexander the Great of that particular time. He has dominated the area. And now he's waged another successful campaign against the Jordan Valley kings. He's subdued a great number of people, and Abraham... Learns that his nephew has been taken, and he goes after him with 318 men and a couple of allies, and they conquer him. They subdue him and recover everything. the the scope the the scope of Abraham's victory is tremendous. But we're going to see in a few minutes that the credit doesn't go to Abraham. The credit goes to God, who is beginning to fulfill His promises to Abraham. So let's read the rest of the chapter. Verses 17 through 24. After Abram returned from defeating Keter, Laramar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, recently beaten, went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. This is the first priest mentioned in Scripture. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed Abram and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and I give praise to God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to Yahweh, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, So you can never say I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten. But as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, they can take their share. So Abraham, Abraham returns from the battle with his retinue and with all that he has recovered, and that must have been a mass of humanity and animals that they brought back with them. And the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, think Jerusalem, uh, meet him there in the valley of Sheveh. One comes blessing, uh, one comes bartering. Uh, the king of Salem comes offering a blessing and the king of Sodom comes offering a deal. Uh, and the contrast is even starker than that because we read in chapter 13 that the men of evil, that the, peop- that the people of Sodom were all evil. So the king of Sodom is the king of evil, right? In fact, his name, Bera, means son of evil. Now, it's likely that his parents didn't name him that, but that he's attributed that name by all the other people around him who recognizes that he is a son of evil. Anyway, uh, he, so and then Melchizedek, the other king who meets him, his name literally means king of righteousness. So there in the valley when Abraham gets back, he's met by the son of evil and he's met by the king of righteousness at the same time. One comes blessing and one comes offering him a deal. Many have pointed out that rightfully speaking, uh, the king of Sodom would be at Abraham's mercy here. He's already lost to these kings twice. Abraham has recovered everything from him. Abraham can return to him whatever he wants, according to the ancient Near East Code. But Abraham decides to return, has vowed that he will return everything to Sodom. What is the significance of this chapter? The significance of this chapter is that God is beginning to fulfill his promises to Abraham. The significance of this chapter is that God is working for and through Abraham. And we're going to observe specific ways that God is working for and through you as well as people of God. So... Uh, Number one there, God starts to give him the land. God starts to give him the land. One of the remarkable things about the geography, and we weren't able to show it on the map, and you'd have to look this up on on a Bible map, but the geography of all the battles is that as these kings come down, what they're conquering is all territory that will eventually belong to Israel. It's all territory that eventually will belong to Abraham's descendants. And what, so what's happening then when, when, um, when Abraham conquers them, in a sense, God is already showing him that he can give him the land, that he is capable of giving him the land. Um, now in the next chapter, chapter 15, God's going to explain to Abraham that in fact the land is not going to come to Abraham and his descendants for another 400 years. And there are reasons for that. But if Abraham entertained any doubts about this whole land coming to him as God had promised, God has just shown him that alliances of powerful kings are no match for him. I want to remind you, too, that God is giving you a place. God is giving you a place as well. What is that place? The promise of Abraham has been expanded through his famous descendant, his most famous descendant, Jesus Christ. You who are united to Christ are promised much more than a swath of land in the Middle East. Um, for instance, Matthew 5.5, 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. John 14, Your heart must not be troubled. Believe in me. Believe, believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you I am going away to prepare a place for you. Luke 12, but seek his kingdom and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Daniel 7:18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. A significant part of the promise of God to Abraham is the promise of land that, he, that his descendants are going to have a place to call their own. And a significant part of the promise to you and me is also a place. That God is going to give us a place. He is giving us a place. You will inherit the earth. A kingdom is being given to you. In my Father's house are many places. I am preparing a place for you. You have a place in God's kingdom. God is giving to you a place for you forever and ever. Number two, God backs him against his enemies. God backs him against his enemies. Abraham's victory over the eastern kings is impressive, but verse 20 tells us who is really giving him, who really won that victory. I give praise to God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. Abraham may have had courage, but it wasn't his courage that won the battle may have had prowess, but it wasn't his prowess that prevailed. He won that battle and recovered his nephew and all the captives because God handed those eastern kings and those armies over to him. Here God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Those who bless him will be blessed. Those who come against him will also find that God is against them. To be sure, Abraham had to fight. As soon as he heard about his nephew, he acted. After all, uh, you know, he had a lot at stake there. Abraham had to fight, but the outcome belonged to God. This has significance for you and me in a couple of ways. First, if this is true of Abraham, how much more is it true of his seed, his most famous descendant, Jesus Christ? Look at this verse from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Christ, in other words, God the Father says to the Son of God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This verse is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. The New Testament quotes this Old Testament verse more than any other Old Testament verse. It's kind of like the John 3.16 for the New Testament writers. Um, And what what does it say? It says that God the Father will subdue all those who oppose the Son. No one and no thing triumphs over the Son. He may have powerful enemies, but they are all subjugated in the end. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty six 26 says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now this is good news for us because we are in Christ. You are in Christ. We as a body are the body of Christ. So what happens to Christ happens to us. Our fortunes rise and fall with our Lord's fortunes. So if you are in Christ, God will ultimately subdue all that opposes you. God is going to subdue all that opposes you if you are in Christ. Isaiah 54, 17 says that no weapon forged against you will prevail and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. If you're in Christ, you're going to make it. (laughs) You're going to make it through this life to the next. God will subdue everything that opposes you. When death comes, you will enter into paradise, into heaven, into a fuller life, a life that is shot through with wonder and glory and with joy and with peace. No more suffering, no more pain, no more tears. All of that will be wiped away. I, was, I read a short story recently by uh, Tolstoy called The Death of Ivan Ilyich. And it just, uh, it pictures this, it's talking about a, a guy in Christ, a believer, who is dying, he's in pain, and as he transitions into death, he, all of a sudden, it's like everything drops away from him. He says, everything dropped away on all sides. He said, and my pain, where's my pain? You know, death. What is death? You know, and it, it was like it was nothing. It was all of a sudden there's joy. There's light. There's peace. Um, All the cares had dropped away. It's it's not um, death for the believer is a doorway. It's just a gateway. It's a promotion to a better life. It's a promotion to a fuller life. Um, Secondly, oh, I want to go through this. Secondly, God has outfitted you to be victorious over your enemies here and now. God has outfitted you to be victorious over your enemies here and now. Let's talk about the enemies of a Christian for a minute. All right, some people are confused about enemies. Um, some think our enemies are unbelievers or those who have a different opinion from us. But that is not the case. They are not our enemies. Our hopes and prayers for those who don't know Christ uh, is not conquest, but rather rescue. We don't work for their downfall, we work for their deliverance, just as we have been delivered through Christ. Our goal is not to destroy them, our goal is to bring them into God's family. Ephesians 6.12, for our, struggle, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other believers. Even those who are vehemently opposed to us, they are not our enemies. Now, we are praying and laboring and serving and loving in the hope that they will know the truth about their sin, the truth about Christ, and that they will be saved. Some Christians believe that we don't have any enemies at all. Well, that's not true either. The enemies here are listed in our verse. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. The demonic world is ranged against the believer. But God has given us the means to overcome sin and temptation and the devil, and that's the armor of God. Do you know how to get the devil to leave you? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When you are tempted, resist him. Say no, and the Bible says he will flee. Number three, God uses him to rescue others. God uses Abraham to rescue others. He was a blessing to Lot. God promised that he would be a blessing to others, and immediately he was to Lot, and that he went and rescued, rescued him from his captivity. The promise of blessing through Abraham, again, is ultimately true in Abraham's descendant, Christ. The promise to Abraham is especially fulfilled in Christ. Um, God told Abraham that all peoples on earth would be blessed through you, and that came through true in Christ. In an analogical way, God also uses you to bless others. God uses you to be a blessing to others. How? How can you be a blessing to others? Let me just give you a few suggestions through your good works. Whoops. Oh, yeah, I'm just behind. Through your good works. Through your good works. Uh, You are a salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Um, I need to hurry through. Boy, I'm not the one that usually says that. All right. Uh, be a blessing through your good works. Be a blessing through your prayers. Be a blessing through your prayers. Some of you have told me stories of how uh, you, have pr- you prayed for a long time for a friend or a coworker or a relative for their salvation. And then they came to Christ. And then they were converted um, through your wisdom. You can be a blessing to others through your wisdom. The more you grow in Christ through study and prayer and church, the wiser you become. And as you talk with people, who knows how the truth that you share with them, who knows what kind of an impact they will have in their life. As you're, as you're online, you know, on social media, Facebook, whatever, uh, and you're conversing with people and the truth that you share, who knows what kind of repercussion that may have in their life in terms of salvation. Conversations sometimes lead to conversions. God is not distant from you. He is working through you to bless others. Finally, God used Abraham, uses him to witness to others. How does he witness to others? Well, when Sodom said, when the king of Sodom said, you know, here's what we'll do. You can keep this. I'll take that. And Abraham says, I'm not, I have already vowed to the Lord. I'm not taking anything from you. You keep it all because I don't want you ever to think or to brag or to boast that you made me rich, it wasn't you. It's God who has enriched me. It's God who is my sufficiency. He was a witness to the king of Sodom and to others around him at that point. And God uses you as well to witness to others. When When you trust in the Lord, when you lean on him and take him in his word, you shine a light on God and you are a witness to him. So Abraham here, you know, people people know that he follows and worships and communes with God, the creator of heaven and earth. The question is, do the people around you know that you follow Christ and that you worship God? They may know what sports team you root for. Do they know that you love the Lord? They may know who your favorite band is. Do they know that you worship Christ? They may know your passion for, fill in the blank, coffee, <laughs> books, animals, whatever. They may know your passions, Do they know your passion for Jesus Christ. Jesus told Paul that he was sending him to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they might turn from, light to dark, from darkness to light. They might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. He sends us as well to open people's eyes that they might turn to him. So God worked for Abraham and through Abraham, and in similar ways, as the New Testament teaches, God works for and through you. He is giving you an inheritance, a place, the kingdom. He has equipped you to defeat all that opposes you, and with his help you will defeat all that opposes you. Nothing in the, nothing in the end will keep you from your reward in Christ, not disease, Not horrible finances, not rotten luck, not being fired from your job, not being unemployed for a long time, not family troubles. Nothing is going to keep you from your reward in Jesus Christ if you're a child of God. And he is using you to be a blessing to others by pointing them to Christ. Uh, We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Music team, we are not going to sing the last song. Um, So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you much for the promise to Abraham. The ultimate significance of that promise is the fact that it, uh, is that through Abraham came Christ, and Christ is the source of all spiritual blessings to us. We have been blessed in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, and we thank you for that. I ask, Lord, that you would shape us and mold us um, to the point where we are Well, I I trust that you are already doing this, that you are working through us in various ways uh, to point others to Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.